Did you know that TR Historical is the only online retailer of my merch? That's right. You can go over there, and I have stickers and buttons. Sooner or later, we might put some more stuff up on there. But Dave Boussier over there, owner-operator of TR Historical, has been a great friend of mine since I met him at an air show. We hit it off immediately, and we decided that we had to work together. On top of that, they have so much other stuff there as far as history swag on trhistorical.com. You're going to love it. I've ordered several shirts off of there, and there's some great stuff. I mean, if you want history swag, you got to check it out. So go over on trhistorical.com. Give them some love. Let Dave know I sent you. What's up, everybody? Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Tattoo Historian Show. My name is John. I am the Tattoo Historian, and I've been really happy with the numbers of Season 3. You guys have made this thing come alive. You've helped the project progress, and I couldn't be happier with it. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for that. Thank you for liking it. Thank you for rating it. Thank you for sharing it out, subscribing to it. It all means a tremendous amount to me and to those who I know we're going to have on here in the future. Uh, this week, I ripped the audio from the live stream that I did with Harold Holzer a couple weeks back. We talked about his newest book, which is entitled The Presidents Versus the Press, The Endless Battle Between the White House and the Media from the Founding Fathers to Fake News. And we covered all kinds of presidents in this, uh, styles of communication, how they handled the media, it was a really great laid-back conversation, a great live stream. We had tremendous audience interaction as well. Uh, so you'll hear some questions pop up from our audience that I read aloud for the live stream. Really great time. You can find his book online. Uh, it is brought out by Penguin Random House. That's the publisher. I really enjoyed it, and you will too, I'm sure, of it. So kick back, relax. This is my interview with Harold Holzer. Uh, concerning his newest book, The Presidents Versus the Press, The Endless Battle Between the White House and the Media, From the Founding Fathers to Fake News. Joining us tonight, once again, is Harold Holzer. Harold Holzer is a recipient of the 2015 Gilder Lehrman Lincoln Prize, one of the country's leading authorities on Abraham Lincoln, the political culture of the Civil War era. Uh, Harold was appointed chairman of the U.S. Abraham Lincoln Bicentennial Commission by President Bill Clinton and awarded the National Humanities Medal by President George W. Bush. He's the chairman of the Lincoln Forum, and he currently serves as the director of the Roosevelt House Public Policy Institute at Hunter College, City University of New York. Uh, tonight we're going to be talking about the presidents versus the press, the endless battle between the White House and the media from the founding <laughs> fathers to fake news, which is published by Penguin Random House and is now available for purchase. And I gave you links in the comment section. And I'll keep trying to put those up for you as well. So, Harold, thank you so much for, for joining us, my friend. Thank you, John. And I'm amazed at all the nice credits you gave me. And I'm doing them all from right here in my den. Yeah. I'm not going out, so yeah, <laughs> it's a new world. Hopefully, not for long. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully, we can get back to some sort of normalcy here very soon. But uh, it's gonna it's gonna bring up an issue that we're gonna talk about later, which is uh, presidents and technology. But I do want to uh, ask, where did this all begin, Harold, with with this particular book? <coughs> Sorry, John, I've been talking all day. Now, <laughs> your your listeners are paying the price. Um, so as you mentioned, I did a book called Lincoln and the Power of the Press about five years ago, and it got a really nice reception. And as I did the work, I even then I was thinking about how other presidents had dealt with the press. Mm -hmm. But um, I have to say, going to work at Roosevelt House right after that book came out um, set me to thinking a great deal about FDR, because Roosevelt House is not only a part of Hunter College in Manhattan, mm -hmm. it's actually situated in the house mm 
that Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt lived as their New York City residents for the 25 years leading up to the presidency. So you get to thinking a lot about the 20th century when you're in a house like that. Mm-hmm. It's, um, by the way, just to remind everybody, FDR was a collector of uh, naval prints, including Civil War naval prints. But those <laughs> those prints are in Hyde Park at his country home. Anyway, two floors below my office is the second floor parlor where Roosevelt spoke to the nation in a brief radio address the day after the 1932 election. Believe it or not, even though he only won 11 of the 48 states, Herbert Hoover did not concede on election night. Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah. So Roosevelt went on the radio the next afternoon to just give a one minute speech. And he gave the speech in front of a fireplace that still exists in the house. And so I counted as his first fireside chat, Mm -hmm. which we can talk about later as a tradition. Doesn't count in the litany of 28 of them, but I think it's the first. And so I, between Lincoln and Roosevelt, there was a lot to fill in. And of course I went ahead past Roosevelt and looked back at the beginnings of the Republic as well. That's what I found fascinating was the fact that uh, we we tend to think about, you know, presidents in our lifetime who have had to deal with uh, massive changes in media and format of media and things like that. And we don't tend to consider uh, pre, uh, well, pre-antebellum period, what was going on uh, with the press, even from the beginnings of the Republic. And I, and I wondered if, if, Obviously, we can go in chronological order here a little bit this evening. And I was wondering about Washington because of, of obviously being the first president. Is he also the first president who has his first runnings in with press that he doesn't like? Absolutely. And, you know, he had the longest honeymoon in the history of the presidency with the press. Three mm-hmm. years of being idolized by everyone, <laughs> unanimously elected, obviously the great hero of the of the Revolutionary War. But three years in... His own Secretary of State, Thomas Jefferson, couldn't stand it anymore. So he he got an anti-federalist editor to relocate from New York to start an anti-federalist, anti-Washington newspaper in the Capitol. And he got him a job in the State Department as a translator to help pay his expenses. It's unbelievable. Um, And then Washington came under attack the last year of his first term and all through his second term attack for being too pro-British. So there was some that was a policy attack, but it was also very personal and very, um, hurt him very much because people questioned his, the press questioned his behavior in battle. Mm -hmm. They charged him with stealing from the treasury. They attacked him for going to uh, put down the Whiskey Rebellion personally in Pennsylvania. and he found it unendurable. So if you if you look at his farewell address, his famous farewell address, which most people think of as his way of saying two term is two terms is the limit. And uh, I don't want to I don't want there to be kings here, so I'm stepping down. But if you read the paragraph that Alexander Hamilton edited out, he made it clear he was leaving because he hated the press. They had <laughs> tortured him. They made him miserable. In fact, he said they were fake. They were fake news. He didn't quite say that, but it, he they said they were malignant and they were hurting the union. So I think that's one of the reasons he got out. He was not used to criticism. So he's he's the first to imply the fake news, basically. And, and it was the first president. So yeah, as as I point out in the book, um, this tradition is as old as the country, and uh, it's ebbed and flowed. But as you pointed out, John, in the beginning, there were presidents who gone around the press with new communications technologies, but the the dissonance, the the tension between the presidents and the press is as old as the country is. Do you think this is the, the I, I don't want to say the price we pay, but you know what I mean about having the First Amendment and, and that, that you have the freedom of the press and such, and the presidents sometimes don't know how to handle the criticism. Washington, I, I guess, you know, sometimes maybe stomped his feet on the floor wondering what is going on here. And hey, he stomped his feet on the floor, but there was a newspaper on oh, yeah. the floor. So he was stomping <laughs> oh, on the yeah. newspaper, he threw it down. Yeah. <laughs> no, of course, it's a price we pay. And and um, Jefferson, you know, made that clear in his writings that the free press is the alarm bell against despotism. It's the most important 
freedom of the country. If he had to choose between government and free press, he'd choose a free press. So as usual with Jefferson, he was very noble in his aspirations and in his words. But when it came to practice, you know, maybe less so. That's how he re probably reconciled all men are created equal with slavery in his mind, at least. But he also went after the anti-Jefferson uh, press. He created his own newspaper, gave them printing contracts when he was president, mm -hmm. uh, rewarded Republican, you know, old Republican newspapers, and uh, you know was just as as brutal to the press as his predecessor and Washington's successor, John Adams, who still, in my mind holds the record for unjustifiable censorship and crackdowns against the press uh, like no president has ever done before. I mean, Lincoln, Lincoln censored more newspapers and jailed more editors than John Adams, but Adams did it without a war uh, or a rebellion uh, to, to inspire him. Uh, let's go into that with Adams because that's, I, I've always kind of been an Adams fan until the famous Sedition Act came into into being, wow. and 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 uh, because of obviously you know uh, patriots believe in a free press and and this kind of thing, and then here comes Adams and he's saying you know I don't if I don't like it you're going to get tried for it. and and as you say at least he tried people for yes. <laughs> for that yeah. but but maybe some of our listeners don't know uh, exactly what they mean by what we mean by the Sedition Act in general. So this was a law passed by the Federalists as part of a package. It was the Alien and Sedition Acts. Mm. And the first part of it was really getting rid of immigrants, particularly French and Irish immigrants, who tended to be more sympathetic to French interests than the Federalists. Equally heinous was the Sedition Act, which made it a federal crime to ridicule the President of the United States and the Vice President. And um, it was extraordinary because there was no war. There was tension with, uh, with uh, in foreign affairs, but no war. And um, keep in mind also that the entire federal judiciary at the time was all appointed by Federalists, because only Washington and Adams had served. So the Supreme Court, the appeals courts were all Federalist judges. And this is in direct um, contradiction of the constitutional guarantee that Congress shall make no law to inhibit free press. Well, that's exactly what they did. They made the law and Adams signed the law and then encouraged his attorney general to prosecute at least 17 cases that we can attach Adams' imprimatur to. 17 journalists and their widows, by the way. Well, some of them died before they were brought to trial. Um, for sedition, they were fined, they were jailed, and uh, it was pretty brutal. As one newspaper man said, we should, um, make all of our pencils into toothpicks. That's the only way we can avoid prosecution. Hmm. Wow. It, it helped me understand the origin of toothpicks. I guess they go back. <laughs> yeah, they came from pencils. They descended from pencils. From pencils too, yeah. <laughs> they descended from pencils. That's yeah, yeah. I'll use that. But... Okay. You don't have to you don't have to footnote me. It's fine here. Okay. <laughs> um I I want to since it's just uh, you and I this evening, I, I want to get our our, our people involved in the comment section from time to time, let them be able to interact with you and and and, and ask their questions and such. And we have a, a question that I would love to, to get to because it's one that I actually wrote down I haven't gotten to yet. Uh, do you have a favorite president with their involvement with the press, perhaps past and, and present? Well, I'm going to leave out Lincoln, which we can circle back to because I've written so much about it, him. And of course, he's my favorite in the way he courted Republican papers and befriended them and even bought a German language newspaper in the year run up to his election so he could make sure that there was a pro-Republican voice among the German readers in, in Northern Illinois, Central Illinois. Um, but the new favorite for me is, is definitely FDR. I suspected that would happen. You know, I grew up in a, in a home in New York City where my parents, you know, talked about Roosevelt in terms of, of you know, godlike status. He had rescued the country mm -hmm. from depression. He'd been president, you know, for, tw for 12 years. Um, so he was a beloved figure to begin with. But what I investigated about Roosevelt is he did three things extraordinarily well. 
One is he gave access to the press, 998 presidential news conferences in 12 years in the White House at his home in Hyde Park um, in Warm Springs, Georgia at the Little White House in foreign shores um, on a battleship once coming back from a summit conference. I, I don't remember whether it was from Casablanca or, or Yalta, maybe Yalta until late in his presidency. He would hold news conferences. So it was, A, there was access. B, there was, he was making sure that the, the journalists were his friends. As a result, there was a gentleman's agreement among photographers never to take pictures of Roosevelt with, in his wheelchair, never to take pictures when he was being lifted in and out of automobiles. Um, that we have a, a great photograph, a, a life-size photograph at Roosevelt House of Roosevelt meandering, getting himself down the stairs of that house. There are four steps to the street. It's not easy. So they had a railing there, but he would put on his braces and go down the stairs, um, holding on, usually with his son helping him. Well, the Daily News took a picture. The New York Daily News took a picture. This is the, they donated it to us. And they didn't publish it. Why? Because you just saw the outline of his braces on the bottom of his shoes. And that was considered off limits. No one ever made that rule until later during the war, but they enforced it because they liked Roosevelt. As a result, most people did not know that he could not walk. They knew he had had polio, but they thought he'd recovered. And then the third and final thing, uh, and all the great presidents have done at least two of the three, Roosevelt may be the only one who did all three. He found an alternative means to communicate to the people. I'm not saying FDR loved the publishers, he didn't. And they, there was never in any of his four elections a time when the majority of publishers in this country endorsed FDR. Not even in 1936, not in the middle of the war, never. Mm -hmm. So he always had majority opposition on the editorial pages. That's probably why he was so nice to the, to the White House correspondents. But he also found a way around editorial opinion. And that's by using the radio and newsreels to a lesser degree, both new technologies. And those 28 fireside chats were so influential and so um, must-see must TV, but must-hear must radio. People right. thought he was on the air all the time, like Jack Benny or Burns <laughs> and Allen, because his voice was, I just gonna tell you one quick story because it's probably my favorite story in the book. The novelist Saul Bellow, who would one day win the Nobel Prize for Literature, was a young Chicago writer working for the federal government for the Writers Project, funded by the New Deal. So on one really hot summer's day in Chicago, he was listening to a fireside chat in a taxi cab, and he couldn't stand the heat and the traffic jam. So he paid off the driver, he got out, he started walking down this grand boulevard in Chicago. Only problem was he was sorry he was gonna miss the rest of the fireside chat. Well, as he walked, he passed by car after car after car whose windows were open against the heat. He never missed a word of the fireside chat as far as he wrote. That's wow. what they say in the media is penetration. Yeah, that's power. You know, that's that's wild. Uh, uh, you brought up Roosevelt and, and it's kind of interesting to me because uh, I'm a big Teddy guy. Uh, I'm actually... Uh, fun fact in the state of Pennsylvania, I'm actually registered as a bull moose uh, party member for, for ah. writing because I was you like, may, oh. You may have to write in somebody or break. Not, I don't think there's a progressive party candidate. No, there's not. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've actually been written into local elections, which has been funny. But uh, Teddy has always been one one guy that I've admired because of his preservation efforts and, and such like that. Uh, since we've talked about one Roosevelt, how By the way, the FDR, FDR did come to Gettysburg once. I hope oh, you all yeah. Know. yeah, he came to Gettysburg and gave a speech, some anniversary, I'm not sure which, as Wilson did, of course, for the famous 75th. Oh, yeah. But yeah. but FDR came too. And right. guess what? He really did write his address on the train, unlike Abraham Lincoln. Day. Yeah. yeah. That, that would be the uh that's what the 75th is where FDR was, right? It was the eternal peace light. Yes. And, right. and, and Wilson was the 50th, 50th. right? Yeah. Yeah. Wilson was the 50th of Gettysburg. Right, right, yeah. Yes, eternal peace. That's exactly where he was. And he met 
a survivor of a U.S. Colored Troops regiment at that visit. Oh, really? Yeah. By the way, one more thing about FDR, then I'd love to talk about Teddy. Yeah. His press secretary, here's a Civil War connection. And think of how close those guys were to the Civil War. Oh, sure. In 1930, they were only, you know, 70 70 years away from the beginning of the war. Um, FDR's press secretary throughout his presidency, so one person for 12 years, was the the great nephew of Jubal Early. Oh, wow. And FDR, who was a big Civil War reader, Mm -hmm. um, was pretty excited about Stephen Early. The one problem is that Early is now considered responsible for preventing African-American journalists from participating in those press conferences for 11 years. The first black reporter did not get access until 1944. Roosevelt had less than a year to live. And his excuse was they were only da- he only allowed daily newspapers, not weekly papers, but the preponderant number of black newspapers in the country were weeklies. So that's just a, a Civil War sideline. Yeah. Okay, we should, not, we should do Teddy though. Yeah, I, 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 have, uh, I have long conversations with my partner's uh, son because he's, he's in, he talks about why were presidents assassinated? He's 11. And he's like, why are presidents assassinated? And then he talks about Teddy and he's like, this guy was shot and then still gave a speech. You know? And I was always fascinated with Teddy myself. And, and that was when he was a bull moose. So that's probably, yeah. 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 yeah I've, seen, registered I've like. seen the speech, by the way, the speech, oh, yeah. the, the actual speech he gave, which he folded five times and put in his pocket. If he had given the Gettysburg address, he would be dead. But fortunately <laughs> he had a very big, thick manuscript in there and it yep. absorbed most of the blow of the bullet. Although the bullet entered his body mm-hmm. yeah, and he, yeah. and he never had it removed. Wow. Yeah. That's it's amazing. You know, the stories of that, that era for me, at least for, for my educational purposes, what I've been through in university and, and high school and such kind of gets glossed over where it's like, you know, Oh, we talk about yellow journalism yeah, uh, during the Spanish American war. And then it kind of transfers to the first world war. And, and we kind of, yeah. uh, well, and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. with the press. Teddy's complaint, his big complaint is that he had never been commander in chief in a war because he thought it would diminish his place in history. Mm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But he was, and, and remember, he had a direct, several direct Civil War connections. His father was, uh, of course, bought a substitute uh, uh, to avoid uh, the draft in 1863. Teddy witnessed Lincoln's funeral as a very young child. Well, I guess he was about 11 or, or so, sitting in the w- upper window of his of the Roosevelt family mansion in downtown Manhattan, he saw the funeral path, the funeral cortege pass by, on uh, in Lower Manhattan, and of course, uh, when McKinley died and uh, T.R. became president, he inherited John Hay as Secretary of State, and Hay had been Abraham Lincoln's private secretary. Yeah, he gave T.R. a ring that had a lock of Lincoln's hair in it, and Roosevelt wore it for the rest of his presidency. Hmm. Wow. Didn't Roosevelt also kind of, I don't know if you would would say befriend, but he kind of lured in uh, the press to kind of be like an inner circle kind of thing? Absolutely. So what he did is, you know, we got right to the White House, didn't enter into mourning for McKinley, really. Mm-hmm. And he invited journalists in while he was being shaved by his barber in the little hallway adjacent to the, old, the new Oval Office. And um, um, Roosevelt was an inveterate multitasker. So he couldn't just be shaved because that would be a waste of time. Couldn't read a book because he probably couldn't have to wear his glasses. So he invited the journalists, about 10 of them, to squeeze into the hallway and ask him questions all off the record. And he liked the, the good use of his time. So he did, did it every day, every workday. The journalists had a 1 p.m. appointment to watch him being shaved. They called it the barber's hour but they were really the first press conferences. And eventually they purposely would ask him the most provocative questions, just as the barber was taking the straight edge razor on his neck, because TR would always jump up when he heard him questioning him. They wanted to see if they could draw blood, literally. But TR never, the barber was really good at moving the blade away. Yeah. But, but, but you know, he did still keep a strict 
control, you know, if they wanted to put something on the record, they had to ask. If they kept in his good graces, they were part of what he called the Oyster Bay atmosphere, named after his Long Island home, meaning they were in the club. And um, if they violated his rules, he put them in what he called the Ananias Club. And uh, the Ananias is named for a biblical figure who lied to St. Peter and immediately dropped dead as a result of lying. So that was his secret name for bad journalists. So he was, he could be rough. You know, he would threaten them. He would throw some out. He would refuse to give press releases to reporters he didn't like, but he so craved to be on the front page every day that mm. he was, a, and the journalist who covered him said he was the greatest press agent of all time. He was a natural. He was a natural. And he invented things that we take for granted today. Leaks, which presidents have come to hate. He was <laughs> the biggest leaker of them all. Trial balloons. He not only created trial balloons to see if he could get traction from the public for policies he believed in, he invented the term trial balloon and bully pulpit <laughs> and leaks and also um, um, swamping, which is more of an inside term. I don't know if you know what that is. But I don't know what that is. So when he found out that an opponent or a rival was going to have a big announcement, he would do a bigger announcement to swamp <laughs> the news cycle and make Indeed. sure. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So he so, was a ma master at it. Yeah. So he's 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 using the press in new ways in, in that regard, where he's getting ahead of a story and saying, I'm going to run up you. Exactly. And Thank he you. also is writing articles. He continues to write journalism. Um, while he's while he's president, and he if he gets on a kick about an issue, um, for example, he hated the book Uncle Remus. He hated books about animals that gave animals human characteristics. It just drove him crazy. He um, and there was a counter movement, you know, these Br'er Rabbit, those things. He hated that, so he created a movement to attack people who weren't naturalists about animals. Animals, he said, are good for two things, hunting and eating. They're not good to be friendly bunnies and, and Winnie the Pooh bears. And they just went off on a kick and wrote endless articles about it. Wow. Because wow. nobody else was interested particularly, I must say. Yeah, I, I remember when I was collecting First World War books, uh, he wrote this treatise on why we should get involved in the war. And it was like 1915, 1916. He's already... Yeah. Ready to get, he's ready to raise a regiment again. <laughs> and, yeah. and he was ready even when war broke out. Right. Um, and Wilson wouldn't give him the satisfaction of doing that. He probably wasn't healthy enough at that point, but he certainly wanted to go back into the fight. Yeah. Yeah. He, 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 he was always like that, though. That was, that was, yeah. Pretty much he was a remarkable man. And, and don't forget, at the same time he's getting headlines, daily headlines, he's also um, working with, long form magazine writers like Ida Tarbell and Lincoln Steffens to get them to write deeply researched investigative pieces on how bad uh, the standard oil is or the meatpacking industry. And then he would use their articles to kick off, kick off legislation. But he's the one who dumped them at a certain point and called them muckrakers. That was not considered a compliment in his eyes, although it's now considered a badge of honor. You, you spoke earlier about uh, black journalists and FDR, and, and they finally gained access right before his death. Right. Uh, when do they really uh, gain access? I mean, legitimate access. When do these articles, are, are newspapers and, and journals and such, when do they really gain access to a president? It was very tough. Um, let's remember that Lincoln, when he had meetings with Frederick Douglass, at least the first meeting, was meeting not only with an abolitionist and an orator, but with a journalist. Because in that first meeting, Douglas is still the editor of mm -hmm. Douglas's Monthly, published out of Rochester. And I think we take for granted the fact that that meeting was not only about equal pay for black soldiers um, and about black recruitment, it was about Lincoln suggesting to Douglas that he become the recruiter in chief for African-Americans and sort of got him to give up the newspaper to do that. Um, they say promised him a commission, which he never came through on. Wow. So meanwhile, he got a, a newspaper that had criticized him constantly, 
Douglas's Monthly to stop publishing, which I think is pretty clever. But anyway, so black journalists continue to try. There's a there's an important black press when TR is president, you know, read by people of color, but it's a robust black press. Wilson was, not surprisingly, really difficult with the black press because they opposed it. They thought he was a racist. They were probably right. Um, and um, he finally was convinced um, to see a black journalist and um, uh, was pretty brutal to him and basically threw him out of the office after a few questions he didn't like. And that was the end of his meeting with black journalists. So there aren't many who gain access. In the early days of the Roosevelt administration, white reporters would come out of the White House and give black reporters the news, whisper them the news through the gates so that they would have equal standing. You know, it, it, when you look at the press corps that covered John Kennedy at his televised news conferences, I don't see many black faces, if any, in those first news conferences. Right. So it's a really painfully recent phenomenon. Um, and and um, I think Bill Clinton made a, a really strong effort to get the black press special access. Um, he used to have black press events at the White House. And um, so that was one way he sustained his popularity. I think it was a wise move politically. Did you reach out to anyone who worked in previous administrations or any uh, for presidents about for, for the book? I did. I didn't want to do too much of it. I mean, my, my biggest hope was that I could get my friend Bill Moyers, uh, who was LBJ's press secretary, to talk about it. But he has never spoken about Lyndon Johnson uh, uh, for more than just a, you know, a speech of his own uh, at public television when he retired. And he didn't want to. He just, he just can't bring himself to. He read the chapter in advance and commented, uh, which was nice. I've known him for 35 years or so. And I was happy that he did that. Um, I did reach out to a couple of press secretaries. And in the end, when they were, you know, they are the guardians of the, the reputation and the legacy. Sure. And it's hard to get them to second guess. Now, there are some who did, who, in, who have said really nasty things about their bosses. George Reedy, who worked for Lyndon Johnson. Um, one of... Uh, um, one of George Bush's press secretaries, but they've left uh, ample records in the papers and the, the oral histories. Mm -hmm. So on the subject of um, presidents, I reached out to two, uh, George W. Bush and Bill Clinton. Um, George W. Bush said no, but I had um, one occasion to talk a little bit about the press with him face to face. So I just used that story. And Bill Clinton did provide answers to some questions, um, particularly because the press raked him over the coals. I wanted to hear how he believed, how he judged the the relationship after the passage of. I'm not. I can't even. It's. I can't believe it's 20 years, but it is. Yeah. Yeah, it is 20 years already. Wow. Yeah. And you know he he doesn't bear them. You know he thinks they were just trying to do the job. Uh, he admits that. His administration made some mistakes, like um, they sealed the door between the press room and the press secretary's room because they didn't want people wandering in the West Wing. And the press never forgave him for that. Wow. And he admits that it was a mistake and that it caused a lot of hostility. And he has never forgiven the press, I think, for Whitewater, for the Whitewater and Travelgate investigations. And for the Vincent Foster, that's the thing that hurts him most of all, that they yeah. that they questioned the suicide of someone that he and his wife were close to. Mm -hmm. So um, I haven't heard about whether he liked the book, but I think Mrs. Clinton likes the book, and that makes me happy. So There you go. There you go. We have another question from our, our comment section from Andrea. Uh, when were press conferences finally desegregated? I forgot, I forgot to ask that. 1944 when uh, a, a prominent African-American reporter um, became a wire service reporter. So he was going to be feeding stories to the black press. There was no way Stephen Early um, could keep him out. So he became the first. And he, uh, Roosevelt 
sitting behind his desk and said, good to have you here. And he shook his hand. And that was a demonstration that the barrier had finally been broken. Mm. But it wasn't until 44. And by the way, at the Democratic convention that nominated Roosevelt for his fourth and final term, the black press and the white press were in separate press pits. Yeah. So, you know, segregation forever in those days. Right. Not just the army, not just streetcars and restaurants, but the press as well, trying to cover the White House. Wow. Uh, you, you brought up earlier about uh, Kennedy, and I remember uh, growing up, I grew up in a Kennedy household. It was everything Kennedy. You know, Kennedy was the greatest, kind of like what people said about FDR. And, right. you know, it was the same way. It was John and, and Bobby were the ones I, I grew up, you know, listening to or hearing and then seeing video of. And that's the first time I was exposed to John Kennedy doing the press conferences uh, with, through the old videos. Uh, how revolutionary was that using that technology and how did the public perceive those press conferences? Um, well, Kennedy, um, although Eisenhower had held a live press conference or two from the old executive office building, um, he clearly didn't like him and uh, he was awkward and it was a, the wrong setting. It was you know too tall a room. He was in front of a window, so he's kind of silhouetted. Anyway, Kennedy instituted regular news conferences, and he didn't do them at the White House, um, which I don't think I realized when I was a kid. I used to come home from from elementary school to watch and rush home so I could see the, the press conferences every four weeks or so. Right. They were held at the State Department because it had a theater-style auditorium with raked seating and a place for cameras in the back, and they could black out the part that was unoccupied. But most important of all, it could accommodate hundreds and hundreds of reporters. They had almost 500 reporters at the first wow. press conference. And it, the press didn't like the experiment. They immediately thought they were being taken for a ride. <laughs> uh, and they were. But um, one journalist said it was like watching Kennedy making love in Carnegie Hall. <laughs> but pretty soon they realized that people were recognizing them on the street because Kennedy was calling on them and they were getting FaceTime and airtime too. So right. all of a sudden they loved Kennedy's press conferences. And people watched them in those days. I don't know if your, your folks ever told you this, but it, it, part of it was there was always going to be a moment in the press conference where he was going to say something very witty, very mm -hmm. funny, and crack all the reporters up. And more often than not, he would turn to one woman. Her name was Mae Craig. She had started covering the White House in the press conferences with FDR, who, if you look at the transcript, he always teased her, um, you know, with kind of sexist comments, which I guess was, the, you know, the culture in those days. Uh, like she said, Mr. President, I, I resent the fact that you have security here. And he said, well, we have to get a separate matron just to pat you down. That was FDR's humor. But Kennedy would always call on her when a press conference like got a little bogged down. And at that stage of her life, she was in her 70s. She wore a flower pot hat, ups, like looked like an upside down flower hat. And her questions would be loopy. Um, and he would always, wow. all, they'd have, all she'd have to do was ask the question and people would begin to giggle. Yeah. And then all he had to do is say, going easy on me today, Mrs. Craig. There, there was um, the classic one, and it's I probably shouldn't even mention because it it's complicated. But in the, in the fair housing bill that Kennedy introduced, it wasn't passed until LBJ. The Senate was trying to do an exclusion for small boarding houses. If you have under 20 rooms, you didn't have to let black people into your hotels. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it was called Mrs. Murphy's Law because uh, Mrs. Murphy was the prototypical boarding house owner. They made her Irish for sympathy and irk Kennedy. And so May Craig gets up and asks this long, long question about um, uh, what if Mrs. Murphy has a boarding house in Richmond, Virginia, and she has 21 people and not 20 people. Um, is she going to be obliged to let people into her boarding house? And he, all he said was, it seems to me that it would depend on whether it was a violation of interstate commerce. <laughs> Who would have thought that it was, you know, a comedian because people were just rolling in the aisles. Yeah. So it was entertainment, but yeah. also a remarkable demonstration of how much he knew about policy. 
And mm -hmm. what I later found out about Kennedy uh, from Ted Sorensen's reminiscences and others who were there um, is that he really prepped for these. He prepped in the morning, he prepped at lunch. He made his aides go up to his bedroom while he got dressed for the press conference to continue the preps. And then he would watch the videos when he got back. So he was very into it. I should say, you know, I didn't say this. You asked me if I had spoken to others who worked for presidents. It, I didn't sure. speak to press secretaries, but I did speak to a few others who worked for for presidents. Uh, obviously, there aren't that many left. But I did speak to a, a, a Joseph Califano, who was a, a young aide to Lyndon Johnson, and uh, just had a lot of fun talking about him. Uh, <coughs> Califano said, Johnson said to him, Joe, how could you function if you don't have a wire ticker in your office to constantly listen to the news? He said, I don't need it. I have you. You're always watching the ticker. <laughs> Califano not only helped LBJ, he was actually the person much later as a lawyer, well, not that much later, I guess when you think about it, five years later, who called the Washington Post to say you might want to know that people have just been caught in the Watergate breaking into the DNC. So he broke that story. Wow. I was just going to bring up uh, here shortly about the Watergate incident because <clears throat> through what we hear now and we've heard for years since, especially since Watergate, is the anonymous sources thing. Yeah. And there were hundreds of anonymous sources in Watergate. And it still panned out the way many people thought it would. Uh, how is that seen by Nixon and, and those moving forward about this? You know, did they despise it? Did they say, you know, uh, you know, Teddy comes up with the idea of leaking things? Uh, is this uh, an ongoing issue with many of them where they're like, "What's this story is not true because these people aren't even on the record. This is anonymous." Yeah, absolutely. And I remember living through it that the administration pushed back about anonymous sources. Mm -hmm. And just think that it was really one anonymous source that was feeding Woodward and Bernstein. Right. Wrote Mark Felt. And, um, but I think it was probably the, the moment when anonymous sources reached the summit, the apogee, they were considered legitimate and real, as long as there was an editor to double check. And Beth Bradley, former friend of Kennedy's, who was the managing editor of the Washington Post, was considered reputationally to be strict by the book. And you're right, that was the dawn of anonymous sourcing. You know, there had been before, but not to this degree, not on a daily basis with one major anonymous source. Um, but it was it, the, the matter of leaks was something else. And um, remember Nixon's administration Reagan's administration, Carter's administration, Trump's administration, Obama's administration. Presidents are always insanely upset about leaks. Mm -hmm. And um, we hear that from Trump every day. Um, and his staff leaks like a sieve because some of them are concerned. But uh, President Obama's staff leaked too. Mm -hmm. And he eventually brought charges against two journalists who had published leaked information. I write about that in the book right. and uh, had them wiretapped under the World War I espionage. Wow. Yeah. Thanks, Woodrow Wilson. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, Somebody forgot to sunset that law. Yeah. <laughs> they forgot to rescind that one. Um, Andrea has another great question. Uh, what about the international press? How did U.S. presidents treat them? It's a great question, Andrea. Thank you. Not only is it a great question, it's something I should, probably should have addressed in the book. <laughs> but I, um, it's okay. I mean, there are two kinds of international press. There are the foreign press who attend presidential news conferences. Um, and we started seeing them in the Kennedy press conferences. That's a really good. Who asked that? Andrea? I have Andrea, to, yeah. The yeah. Next book, I'm going to call Andrea before, not right. after the book. <laughs> in, in the Trump era, that President Trump has a, a, some reporters from the foreign press that he calls on uh, when he's feeling a little bit besieged in his briefings. Well, one of them is a Chinese reporter. And he, I, don't, I think it's a, a, from a reporter from Taiwan because he 
typically get softball questions from her. <laughs> or he turns to a, a reporter from the PRC and then attacks the China virus. Mm -hmm. This is not unique to Trump. Presidents have been calling on reporters who they can fight with or get a softball from ever since Kennedy. So it's not. And, and uh, even Eisenhower, you know, we see battles between journalists and President Trump. Well, Eisenhower, who had the first televised news conference, got a question from a woman named Sarah McClendon, who covered the White House for years and years. She was a one-woman Texas news agency. And she called on Eisenhower and said, Mr. President, and this is a question that we could ask today, Mr. President, don't you think that you should reassure America, concerned Americans by playing less golf? <laughs> and he looked at her and he said, Ms. McClendon, how many times do you get fired every week? That's pretty rough. Pretty rough exchange. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's Ike and Candy, I guess, knew how to get a punchline in and uh candy knew definitely how to work a crowd it seemed like yeah you know? and he didn't really battle with the reporters he got annoyed every once i never sunk to the level of arguing in those press conferences mm. um and his i think his finest moment in a press conference i think i even remember it live but i certainly watched them all again on video every one of them and they were they were fantastic most of them are fantastic um after the bay of pigs and the failure of the invasion, during which, by the way, uh, during which time Kennedy had a lot of fights going on with the press. He was furious that they were threatening to write about the invasion in advance. And then when the invasion failed, he was on the phone yelling at editors, why didn't you write an article saying that this was a bad idea? I inherited this. I didn't know it was so crappy, you know. So he blamed them and, right. and restricted them. And he gave a speech called The Presidents Versus the Press, which is how I got the title from the book. Okay. I'll think yeah. about that, about Kennedy. But he did say, I mean, the first question he got a couple of days later was, what is your, you know, what is your, how do you feel now? And he said, um, um, success has many fathers and defeat is an orphan. But this was my fault and I take full responsibility. Mm -hmm. It was a moment of, of, it was a low point of his presidency but it was also a moment of astonishing grace, I think. Mm -hmm. I, I, I know also, and then we'll go off of Kennedy for a little bit, but uh, I know also that he had some trials and tribulations with the press during Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, of, do you, are you going to print this? Are you not? Please hold off. He had a lot of fights with the uh, press. Uh, and it was basically, it started when one of his aides said, um, there are times when we can't give information out. And it was not a. You know, it was obvious that that's was what was happening, but it's probably an unnecessary, unnecessarily provocative thing to say. And they felt they were being manipulated, and uh, you know there was a lot of squabbling. After it was over, a reporter uh, did an analysis, a major magazine I've forgotten which one. It's in the book, um, to say how brilliant Kennedy had been, on the brink, and Kennedy wanted to make sure that he also said that Adlai Stevenson the UN ambassador had choked and, and had been willing to abandon Guantanamo. Mm -hmm. and the, you know, collusion between presidents and journalists is not new. Mm -hmm. uh, that's another thing we, you know, some people object to the fact that Sean Hannity and Donald Trump have a personal relationship and without commenting on the politics Every president who has been a good communicator has had secret or open alliances with journalists whom, on whom they could depend to print favorable uh, reports. It's as old as journalism and as old as the presidency. Well, since, since you are the chairman of the Lincoln Forum, we got to ask about Lincoln and his use and uh, use of political power and, and such against the press for certain press, et cetera, because he almost does like Adams does, only he doesn't put people on trial. <laughs> <You know? laughs> you know? he and he doesn't bother with legislation. Either. Right. Yeah. He just does it. So uh, Lincoln, Lincoln says after um, secession that he has a new power called the war power. And under the war power to save the Constitution, he can abrogate parts of it. 
It's the only way he can keep the union together and stop the insurrection. And he suspends the writ of habeas corpus, um, which I, it, you know, it's arguable, but it's in the congressional section of, of the powers of the government, although it doesn't specifically say Congress does it. Um, he, it was later ratified by the Congress and he suspended press freedoms, especially after Bull Run. So after Bull Run, um, the union is faced with a problem, as you as you well know, because we're in our common wheelhouse now, the Civil War. Right. But you know, it's the end of ninety and hundred day enlistments. Uh, people who signed up in April, it's now the end of July. Lincoln's going to have no army. Democratic newspapers in the North that say don't re-enlist. Let's show the Lincoln administration. Let's just not re-enlist. And let these states go and enough already because we lost you know a couple of hundred people at bull run those are the newspapers that the administration went after the postal the post office department refused to mail these newspapers to subscribers we talk about using the post office mm -hmm. um the army threw newspapers off trains the state department authorized uh and the war department authorized the arrest of editors editors were arrested and put in military prisons, Fort Lafayette in Brooklyn. Um, my favorite story is, uh, well, not my favorite, but an illustrative story. Fort McHenry has been back in the news lately because President Trump went to visit it. It's the fort in Baltimore Harbor where the Star Spangled Banner was flying amidst the rocket's red glare in the War of 1812. And it inspired Francis Scott Key, of course, to write the national anthem. Um, in 1861, an editor named Francis Scott Howard, who happens, Francis Key Howard, I beg you for, well, I've given away the story now. He's the <laughs> grandson of Francis Scott Key. He writes that the Union troops behave badly to women at Bull Run. He's arrested, and guess where he's in prison? Fort McHenry. So that is how pervasive the crackdown was. Ulysses S. Grant started his career in the West, not necessarily by winning battles, but by obeying General Fremont's orders and confiscating printing presses run by Democrats. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was pervasive, military, civilian action by, by Lincoln and the army. Mm -hmm. uh, Bill Brown actually brought up Grant earlier. Uh, how is President Grant's relationship with the press? And since he brought up him uh, doing that for, for Abe Lincoln, it's kind of interesting that that question came up a couple seconds ago here. He got pretty good press as president. Although only two elections have had a, have had newspaper editors in Lincoln's uh, Grant's second election, he ran against Horace Greeley, the crusading but slightly nuts at that point editor of the New York Tribune, yeah. who had been a thorn in Lincoln's side. And not only did he defeat him, he defeated him so humiliatingly that Greeley died before the electoral votes were counted. So he's the only president. The only presidential candidate technically to be dead on election day. <laughs> wow. Do you know what the other editor election was? That's like a real trivia question. No, that's a good trivia question. I don't know that one. Not only was it an editor's election, they were from the same state. It was Warren Harding against John Davis. Oh, wow. Um, both Ohio editors. So that year we knew an editor would become president. Anyway. Mm -hmm. I think Grant's relationship with the press as a general uh, was a little rougher. Um, like other generals, they, they wanted to limit access to news, but Grant also had really good friends in the press who wrote him up, as they say, um, stressed his heroics. And for those in the West, as challenging as it would be to cover Grant, um, it was infinitely easier than covering William T. Sherman. So by comparison to Sherman, Grant was beloved. Sherman hated, hated journalists from the time he fought with them when he was stationed on the West Coast. And, and of course, when they wrote that he had gone insane in 1861, he was ready to kill them. And he actually threatened to kill a reporter once who he encountered. He saw a reporter at a railroad station and he said, what are you doing here? And he said, I've come to cover you. And he, Grant, uh, Sherman replied, if you're not on this next train, you, he, he suggested he would be court-martialed. And indeed, Sherman court-martialed a journalist. 
And oh. Grant um, didn't want to overrule him. And Lincoln had a very dicey uh, choice to make. You know, he didn't want to embarrass Grant or Sherman, but he wanted Grant to overrule him. So mm. another good question. Your, your viewers ask the best questions of anyone <laughs> that I've spoken to about this book so far. That's awesome. That's awesome. And you have a sequel opportunity with the international uh <laughs> with the international people you know that one i clearly couldn't answer and now <laughs> i'm angry that you brought it up again i'm sorry uh <laughs> what old uh, yeah that's okay um throughout this process harold what has been like the most surprising part of it for you like who was the president who caught you by surprise or you know you weren't expecting this uh from this certain individual well I think the the major overarching surprise is that what's old is new again, that this contentious relationship is goes back to the beginning that and and then I think you know to admit to be historically honest about it, that President Trump's bark is worse than his bite when it comes to the press. He complains, he yells, and I think his constant attacks on the media as an enemy of the people is corrosive. and you know, the, his his attacks on the pillars of state um, is having a, you can see in the polls, people have no confidence in the court, the Congress, the military, the post office, the press, the presidency. It's a bad time for the Republic, I think. And part of it is the distrust that is being leveled against these institutions, which are supposed to create a balance of power and a free press to criticize all branches of government. On the other hand, he's never done the Sedition Act. He's never arrested editors. I don't think he's focused enough to do what Adams or Lincoln did. So for that, I'm very grateful. Mm -hmm. And Adams was worse. There was no war. There was no reason for him to feel that, pre that journalists had no legal right to ridicule him if they chose. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the main takeaway. I guess I was most surprised in, on individual presidents mm -hmm. on how um, angry the press is about Obama, because although they respected him generally um, and probably voted for him, they felt he, he stiff-armed them and did not give them access. And one journalist, not only did he authorize wiretaps against critics and leakers uh, or people who published leaks, he sometimes referred reporters' questions to the brand new White House website. Journalists don't like to be told to get their answers from the website. Right. So he, they were, they had the same complaint about him that they had against Reagan, was that everything was staged. Mm -hmm. What uh, as we as we wrap up here, I've, I'm wondering since you studied the journalists and uh, their interactions with the presidents and, and such, who are a couple of the journalists that you've admired in the past? I know you can't say present ones because you don't want to make your friends angry, because uh, <laughs> I'm sure there are a few. Uh, that that you could speak about in the present, who you really admire. Are there any back, uh, you know, during the candy years or previously, where they were really uh, the ones who set the the bar pretty high? Well, I do admire Woodward and Bernstein, although I think their success um, had a an interesting effect on journalists, who thereafter believed that perhaps they too could a bring down a president, b sign. 10 lucrative million dollar book contracts and see me portrayed by Robert Redford and uh, Dustin Hoffman in the movies. Yeah. And I think their triumph was help breed the gotcha culture in journalism that I do think uh, exists. Um, I think through it all, it's not surprising. I was uh, developed a renewed appreciation for Walter Cronkite. Um, is the a, the fact that he commanded such respect from so many Americans, um, and, and B, the fact that with very gentle reporting, he too brought down a president in a way by reporting from Vietnam on that historic occasion when he traveled there, that it was time for America to seek an honorable peace. Um, Linda Johnson was watching the documentary and famously said, if I've lost... Cronkite, I've lost middle America. And he never ran for the second full term to which he was entitled. I admire the muckrakers. I admire Ida Tarbell particularly because she not only wrote 
write an investigative piece, a short biography of Abraham Lincoln at the same time, practically. Um, so there are great characters in the in the press corps. I do have a fondness for Mae Craig, though she was beaten up by presidents from FDR um, to um, to to Kennedy and uh, even Johnson for a time. Uh, I like Mary McGrory, the columnist. Daniel Shore, who's of CBS, who said, now that I'm on the Nixon enemies list, my uh, um, my uh, lecture fees have skyrocketed. And I'll follow Helen Thomas, um, who was UPI correspondent for years and years and then got hired by someone else when the UPI finally let her go. And uh, she ended her career badly with um, an anti-Israel barrage of in, uh, attack on this poor doctor and his son who were visiting the White House. And that finally ended it. But she was a White House correspondent until she was 90. Yeah, she, yeah. she started out as, uh, you know, on the diaper brigade, as she put it. She was covering the birth of President Kennedy's baby, who, who died tragically, but in, in the hospital. But um, she went from that women's beat to to being the person who always asked the first question and always said thank you to Mr. thank you, Mr. President, to end the press conference. If you saw her in action against Democratic and Republican presidents, as I did watching the news conference, she was one tough cookie. She didn't let anybody get away with anything, from Johnson to Nixon to Bush. She was tough. Mm -hmm. I remember she she's an unforgettable figure in many of those conferences. I remember watching her when I was younger. You know. And yeah. And she left an, a mark, even though she she uh, as you said, she had a little bit of a stain on reputation after after that one article. Uh, it was just that the legacy there was was entrenched for for generations to come. And uh, she definitely opened the doors for others. So she definitely opened the doors for women, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And that's fantastic. Well, Harold, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate your time, my friend. I'm, I'm sorry we were a tad late. Yeah, uh, we but, made up for it, right? We ran exactly yeah. around. I'm yeah. very grateful to you for having me back. I oh. enjoy all your, all your, no, that's going to be what they're called. You know, I'm not going to this. All of my streams and all that stuff. All or? your streams. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. And I want you to know I have my, oops, pointing to the wrong side. I have my Gettysburg battlefield flag here. Oh, okay. That was um, hoisted over the, uh, the, the monument the, I guess the Pennsylvania Monument, the day that I spoke at the cemetery in uh, November 19th, 2017. Oh, wow. And um, that's, they then, well, the, the, the great Wendy Allen, who's in charge of the ceremony, has them boxed up and put in this triangular frame. Right. Um, can I say one thing about the Lincoln Forum before Absolutely. we go? Absolutely, please do, please do. So the Lincoln Forum this year, tragically, for the first time in 25 years, we are not able to gather safely or in the big enough crowd in Gettysburg to make it uh, doable. But we are having a Zoom Lincoln Forum uh, with some really interesting speakers um, on November 14th. Uh, it's free to anyone who's a member of the Lincoln Forum. So maybe your listeners, if they're not members, could, uh, could uh, go on the website, www.thelincolnforum.com org, join up and uh, come hear our, our speakers and um, more of me if you can bear it, but it'll be great. And then we do hope to return and uh, we're going to get you to this forum too. In May, we're going to, if all things are, you know, our pandemic is over, we're going to meet again in May. Uh, so we've delayed our silver anniversary, mm. but we're really going to miss the trip and we hope to come back soon. Yes, I would love to. Love to be there anytime. Anytime I can be, you know, with you all there, that'd be fantastic. And someday we'll someday we'll do a live event to Gary Owen too. We'll have some fun with that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They they enjoy doing that, and I know everyone on here enjoys them. And uh, yes, I, I just posted a link to the Lincoln Forum if anyone wants more information on that. Fantastic. Uh, so you can become a member of that as well. Uh, I earlier I did place a, a link for the book. Uh, that we spoke about tonight, the presidents versus the press, the endless battle between the White House and the media from the founding fathers to fake news. I do want to thank everyone in the comment section for filling it up with some great uh, questions and comments and memories about 
some people that you remember in the in the uh, in the pool there that's yeah. been great and uh harold thank you once again for for coming on and being a part of this it really means a lot to me and it means a lot to to everyone watching as well and uh, we're, we're glad you enjoy doing that and i do it means a lot to me too thank you john take care thank you so much take care everyone have a great evening uh be safe out there take care everyone